if we were to sit down for a coffee and you asked me what I'm thinking about um, for the rest of 2021 and then as I'm thinking about how we're going to get into 2022 and we're just having a conversation, um, I would tell you that what I personally am trying to get through and out of is survival mode. I don't want to be in survival mode anymore. I feel like I have been reactive rather than proactive with everything in my life. Some of it necessarily, some of it just, just maybe because I, I'm tired. I'm not exactly sure why. I'm not a very good reactive person. Um, we're all wired a little differently. I'm, I'm the proactive person. I'm the person who lives in the future. I, I, I have thoughts that I have shaped around the next five years, the next 10 years. I kind of know where I want things to go. And what happens is when you're waiting on the weekly announcement to let you know what you can do this week, you don't do very well. So I've been in survival mode for a while and I want to get through that. And I, I want to retrain myself how to move past it. I want to move into thriving again and to move out of, of what has been, I think, difficult for a lot of us, just in the uncertainty of things. The good news is, though the last 18 months have been maybe some of the hardest months of your entire life, and I would say some of the most difficult things in our generation to deal with, uh, the good news is thriving in your walk with God is not circumstantial. Thriving in your walk with God is not circumstantial. So it doesn't matter what the circumstances around you are like, you can actually experience tremendous blessing and joy and be filled with the Spirit of God and serve Him in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. The Bible tells us this, 2,000 years of Christian history tell us, story after story after story of people who have thrived in their life with God in spite of their circumstances. And so today I have a very simple word for us out of Psalm 116. I just want us to do more than survive. I want us to do more than survive and I want us to move into thriving. And, and I, what I want for you, my prayer for you this week and my prayer for you this morning was that, that as a body of believers, that you would do more than survive in the coming months. That you would thrive in your life of intentional relationship to God. It's what I want for you, it's my prayer. And when you have that one priority in place, where you want to thrive in an intentional relationship with God. When that is established, all the secondary things come into the right space. They come into the right order. So you want to be a great husband? Seek the Lord in word and prayer. It's actually not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. You want to be a great wife? Just seek the Lord in word and prayer. Highest priority. You want to be a great student? You want to be a great friend? You want to be a great parent? You want to be a great employee? You want to be a great employer? You want to be a great church member? You want to be a great neighbor? Pursue God like you've never pursued him before. Set your intentionality on that relationship. Everything else comes into the right order. We move beyond reactive survival and we move into thriving in our walk with him. It's a word and prayer kind of life that I'm aiming at. Now don't mishear me when I say that it's a word and prayer. It's a scripture and prayer kind of life I'm talking about. These are not ends in themselves. Your time in God's word is not an end in itself. Your time in prayer is not an end in itself. 
God's word reveals who he is and what he's like and how we should live. And prayer is how we commune with him. And a word in prayer life drives us toward God in the gospel. A word and prayer life forms us into who we are called to be. A word and prayer life sets us up to live in the fullness of what God has for us as we live before his face, as we live in his presence. We're gonna see in the psalm. It's word and prayer in the community of God's people, and it's word and prayer in the community of God's people, not as an end in themselves, but as a means to walk you into relationship with him. Think about a blacksmith. I'm from the country. You could say a redneck, a little town in Alberta. Actually, I'm from 15 minutes away from Heath, where he grew up, if that tells you anything, if you know who Heath is. Heath's Heath's little town is worse than my little town, okay? It's more redneck than my little town, just he's not here to defend himself or the honor of his hometown, okay? I actually knew blacksmiths, okay? So when I talk about a blacksmith and you go, I think I saw that on TV once. No, I I knew them. You, you can forge things out of metal, and what you do is you heat it up. You can see this, maybe, maybe you like swords. Maybe you like those TV shows that talk about how they make swords. That's kind of cool, too. You stick it in the fire, you heat up the metal, you pound it. You shape it. You want to strengthen it, you heat it up, you fold it over, you pound it out flat, you put it back in the fire. You heat it up, you score it, you fold it over, you pound it out, and it's a process of repetition. Here's my point. There is no formation in your life without repetition. So as you pursue God, it is a word, prayer, community of God's people. It is a put it in the fire, pull it out, score it down the middle, fold it over, pound it flat, shape it the way you want, put it back in the fire, score it down the middle, fold it over, pound it out again, shape, and this is how God shapes us. It's a process of repetition that leads us into deeper relationship with him. Imagine I'm married, I've been married for almost 18 years. Imagine I said hi to my wife, you know, once every few months, not in daily repetition. Like I'm not one of those guys who said, I, you know, I told you I loved you on the day of our wedding, I'll tell you if it's gonna change. Don't be that guy. You need to be in relationship. The relationship is, is fueled by the repetition that comes. I have kids, I tell them all the time, I tell them on a daily basis, I love you. Like there's no doubt that my three daughters know that I love them. Put it in the fire, score it down the middle, fold it over, pound it flat. Word, prayer, the community of the church. Word, prayer, the community of the church. God's means for forming you into the human being he's called you to be. God's means for drawing you deeper into relationship with him so that you will accomplish all the things that he's set out for you to do according to his will in your life. Okay, how do we do this? How do we do this? It is not a life of perfection. It's not. If you are sitting here today going like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good for in an ideal world, you know, I could could maybe be that kind of person, but I'm not that kind of person. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, walking with God is not stopping repenting. It's not becoming perfect, it's don't give up on repenting. 
It's not saying I'm going to achieve some level of perfection and then maybe I'll be good enough for God to use me. What it's saying, and and when we have a word, prayer, community of the church kind of life and we devote ourselves to relationship to God with great intentionality and we're becoming and being formed into the kind of people that he wants us to be, what's happening is that you're not going to be perfect. You're being made perfect, but that's a future thing that's not gonna happen in this life. What your task is in the midst of it is to not stop repenting, not give up, on the growth that God is bringing you through. Okay, how does it happen? Look at Psalm 116 with me. Don't tell Jake my introduction was that long. Okay, it's just between us. Oh, and, and whoever's on TV there. Verse one, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called in the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Okay, verses one and two, kind of a combination of introduction into the psalm, also a bit of a summary. Just look at verses one and two one more time. I love the Lord because he has heard me, he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Simple. And look at verse three. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. So how do, you, how do you get to a place of living a God-centered life? That's what I'm talking about, an intentional pursuit of God. Trials, suffering, tribulation, distress, sorrow, and the furnace of affliction. And they're not the only way you get to a God-centered life, but they're very effective. Trials and suffering and tribulation and distress and sorrow and the furnace of affliction will actually lead you to a place of living a God-centered life. Welcome to Christ City and Brett, we will not have you back next week. Thank you very much. This is true. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't true. I wish it was different. This is true. Would you believe me if I told you that you can draw a straight line from your troubles and draw a straight line to praise. If you could draw a straight line from your troubles in life and connect it to praise, would you believe me? See, trouble drives us to prayer. Prayer brings us deliverance, and deliverance produces praise. Trouble drives us to prayer, and prayer brings us deliverance, and deliverance produces praise. So our trials and our troubles and our sufferings can lead directly to praise, providing we turn to God in the midst of them. That's the condition. Don't take my word for it, look at verse three. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called in the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. See, verse three is the occasion for verse four. Verse three is the trouble and the distress and the anguish. Verse four is the crying out to God. Save me, God. Deliver me, God. He says, in my distress and anguish, deliver my soul. He says, the snares of death encompassed him. That there was a situation and a circumstance in the past where the snares of death had a hold of him. 
The picture being bound up with ropes or cords, somebody dragging you into a pit. It's that kind of picture. It's a visceral image that the psalmist is portraying here. Okay, and he can feel it. We can feel it even as we read the words, the pangs of Sheol. The feeling of death has been upon him. Sheol is the place of death. He was being pulled into the place of death. And in his desperation, he called out to God. And do you see what happens? He called out to God and said, this is what happens. It it results in the verse that we're introduced to in verse one. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. God hears the cries of the needy. He hears our call for salvation. He knows our desperation. No matter the affliction, he responds to us. Do you believe that? See, the sooner in your walk with God that you believe that your trouble, when you connect it to prayer, will lead to deliverance, the sooner you recognize that this is how God is going to grow you and how you are going to experience his supremacy in the world, the sooner you admit and take in this uncomfortable truth, the sooner you'll thrive in it. Trouble drives us to prayer. Prayer is heard by God and brings deliverance. And God's deliverance produces praise. Some of you know this. You've felt the pangs of suffering and distress. You felt it. You know it. You're sitting here right now going, preaching to the converted, Brett. Thank you very much. Move on. Preaching to the converted is underrated. If you already know this, then this is encouraging to you. That's how you know you know it. I can see the heads of the people nodding, and I might not know who you are, but when you nod your head when this kind of thing is proclaimed, it's because you've experienced it, you know it's true, and you want God in the midst of whatever's happening. You know it. You know that your joy is not governed by circumstances. Your joy is in the Lord. You know that. Here's my fear. My fear is that some of you sit here thinking, I've never been in a real desperate place like that. I've I've never felt the anguish that's in this text. Okay, to you I would say this. If that's how you feel, you've not rightly counted how desperate you are apart from Christ. If when you hear this psalm read and when you hear the words that I am communicating, you're sort of, I don't feel that. I think you've forgotten how lost you were before Christ, or perhaps you've never acknowledged that you're lost. You've forgotten, if you're a follower of Jesus, from where you have been delivered, and you've forgotten what you've been delivered from. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, I'm actually not like even the worst person who lives on my street. I just don't know the desperation that this psalmist is talking about. I think we can become too earthly in our thinking. Too temporal in our view of God's deliverance. We think that it's just circumstances around us when actually we need the greatest deliverance first. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Are we mindful of this? So the problem with humanity is that we are tangled and ensnared 
and being drug into the place of death, we don't even know it. We're just, we're just getting good coffees, living in a great city, just hoping that there's not too much smoke because we want to get out and get our jog in this afternoon. We're desperate without him. We are in desperate need of salvation. Our city is in desperate need of salvation. The snares of death encompassed me. And you think, gosh, you are negative for a guest preacher. Read the Gospels. Open Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and, and read through, do, do a cursory reading of all four Gospels. Do it as an exercise and just look at the amount of times that Jesus warns his hearers about hell. We are in desperate need of salvation and sometimes we just forget. We just forget. I'm just, I'm just trying to remind us. Ephesians Chapter two, verse one says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them it's a good bible the good news of the salvation and the deliverance of Jesus is only good news when we rightly comprehend how bad news the, how bad the bad news really truly is If you think you're, you're pretty good, right? I'm pretty good. Here's, here's me two months before I came to Christ. I was almost 20 years old. I was a 19-year-old young man, and I would have said this to you. I would have said, I don't know, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm not the best. And then the classic comparison, but I'm not Hitler. I'm pretty good. If I need God, it's just a little top-up. Like, I'm good. You know, it starts here and comes up, and I'm, I'm like here on my own. I just need a little top-up to here, and then I'll, I'll just be, I'll be, I'll be saved. I'll be okay. Just give me a little bit of that gospel. Ow. I wasn't pretty good. I was actually a train wreck. Actually, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called in the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Until you know how bad the bad news is, you will not recognize how good the good news is. And Christ has accomplished this. It's gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even you who thought you're doing okay on your own. What happens is once you acknowledge your need, 
and then you pray and ask God to deliver you, and he does deliver you because that's who he is, then you praise. You can draw a direct line from your situation and circumstance through prayer and deliverance to your praise. And your praise to God will compound as you turn to him in the midst of your trials. Christ City, stop trying to do it on your own. James tells us this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I don't know if you woke up this morning really excited about this, but you want your faith to be tested. That's how you know it's the real deal. It's gotta be tested. It's gotta be. When your faith's tested, when you suffer trials and you turn to God in prayer, he hears your prayers, he delivers you, and the result then is compounded praise because you know how good he is. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, formerly a slave trader who understood how bad the bad news was when he came into relationship with God and heard the good news, he said, I have reason to praise him for my trials for most probably I should have been ruined without them. Look at our text, verse one, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Seeing God's salvation at work in your life leads to the because and the therefore in this text. Okay, verse two, because he heard me, he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Because and therefore, so what if, what if we just made a decision right now? Okay, you sitting there, me standing here, making a decision together. That we're gonna turn to God first in prayer when there are challenges. What if we decided that as a group right now? Can you imagine what would happen this week? If, if when we encounter a trial tomorrow morning at the office, when there is some sort of bitter feud in your family, when you are you know, just done with your roommate because no, the dishes don't actually need to soak before you wash them. When your neighbor comes and tells you that your grass is too long, when your landlord tells you you might have to move out because they might do renovations, which means increasing the rent to rent it to someone else. What if when you feel that, what if we turn to God in prayer first? See, the direct line between our trouble and praise goes through turning to God and being delivered by him through whatever means. I'll tell you what would happen is that God would be praised in a supreme way among you as a community. Your neighbors would take notice, your coworkers would take notice where, where there's a problem and you say first, let's pray about this and just trust the Lord with it. He hears, he delivers, he saves, he's worthy of our praise. And again, seeking God in word and prayer is not the end in all of this, it's the means to the end that I wanna show you in verse eight. Verse nine, it says, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So our psalmist is in trouble, 
He turns to the Lord in prayer, calls on the name of the Lord for deliverance. God delivers him from the distress and the anguish that he was experiencing, and he felt the, the cords of death just tightening their grip on him. And his response to that deliverance was to commit to call on him the rest of his days. When you encounter God as the true deliverer, you know that you have deliverance. You need to keep calling on him because he knows that God answered that prayer. What I want you to see in verses eight and nine is how relational this gets. God delivers his soul from death, his eyes from tears, and his feet from stumbling. It's a deeply personal recognition of what God has done. And the expression of his love toward God is then seen in verse nine. In the words of verse nine, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Hey, okay, this is an interesting verse. Hang on to what this is saying. Verse nine. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He's saying, I will walk in the personal presence of God. I will walk in the personal presence of God. In a sense, this is the whole point or the end in mind when we're talking about living a God-centered life of word and prayer in the community of the church. When we're putting that iron in the fire heating it up, pulling it back out, scoring it, folding it over, pounding it flat, putting it back in to be shaped when God is shaping our lives through the fiery trials and all the things that happen around us and he shapes us to become who we're called to be. This is kind of the end of it, that we would live our lives before God. I will walk in the personal presence of the Lord. The whole point is to live a life full of the knowledge of God, that we are living and walking in the presence of God. There's a Latin phrase that summarizes what I'm talking about here and what verse nine is talking about here. It's the phrase quorum Deo. It's one of my favorite phrases. Quorum Deo, C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. Quorum Deo. It just means before the face of God. R.C. Sproul defined it like this. He said, this phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. Christ City, can you think of a better pursuit of your life, for your life? Quorum Deo, to live one's entire life in God's presence, under God's authority, and for God's glory. This is what I'm talking about. This is the way forward from having any kind of divisions in your life too, where you would have sort of like your spiritual thing. And I know that sometimes this is maybe more, the guys are more prone to this, at least in my home, it's the way that it is. Where Allison's everything is intertwined with everything. That's how it works for her. In my life, it's a little more compartmentalized. I can have my spiritual life, and I can have my personal devotional life. Before I was in ministry, I had like my church service life, and I had my work life, and it's very easy just to segment those things off. No, no, all of it is before the face of God. That means when you're framing a house tomorrow, that means when you're wiping a diaper tomorrow, because I've seen the kids' ministry around here. That means when you're cooking dinner, that means when you're gardening, that means when you are serving that person, that customer who comes in, that means when you're studying for that exam, whatever it is that you do and wherever you go, it is before the face of God. It is quorum Deo. You live in your home, quorum Deo. You do your work, quorum Deo. You're educated, quorum Deo. You relate to others, you love your spouse, you live in singleness, you run your home and your finances and your entertainment and your eating and your drinking and your loving and your mourning and your weeping and your celebrating, Coram Deo, before the face of God. 
all of life in God's presence under his authority for his glory. And a quorum deo life is so much more than just surviving. A quorum deo life means you thrive in the midst of any circumstance. Thriving in the new resurrection life that Christ has granted us by recognizing that he is with us and for us and that all of life is in his presence, under his authority, for his glory. It's Coram Deo. After all of this, the psalmist asks in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Uh, in the prophets in the Old Testament, quite often you see the phrase used, it'll talk about the cup of God's wrath. It's a familiar phrase in the Old Testament. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the cup of salvation is spoken of. And I think it's in contrast with that. So there's the cup of wrath, and then here in just this Psalm, there's the cup of salvation. Thousands of years after this was written, Christ City, how do we lift up the cup of salvation? The only way we lift up the cup of salvation is to see that Jesus first lifted a cup as well. The night before his crucifixion, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a place of pressing, it was a place of prayer. And he was knelt down in prayer, three of his disciples just a ways off. And he cried out to God in the midst of the circumstance he was in, knowing that his father was with him and for him, but knowing that the purpose for which Jesus had arrived at that point in his life, for the reason that he was there on that night before his crucifixion, he had the greatest trial of his life in front of him. Luke twenty-two forty-one says, Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was talking about the cup of God's wrath, the cup of affliction. And the only way that any of us can lift up the cup of salvation is to see that the Father did not remove that cup from Jesus and that Jesus took that cup of wrath and suffering in our place. Earlier that night, Jesus had had dinner with his disciples, we call the Last Supper, and years later, having been discipled into what that Last Supper was about, Paul the Apostle wrote to the church in Corinth. That's what he said. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the good news for us is that Jesus Christ took the cup of wrath and drank it to the full on the cross. When he died atoning for our sin, he died in our place for our sins that we might be saved. And because we know that he asked the Father to take that cup of wrath, that he might not have to drink it. And the Father said, no, this is the call. 
and that Jesus obeyed that and he did so, again, drinking it to the full, we now can lift up the cup of salvation. And that's what this psalm, I believe, looked forward to. A day when we could all celebrate the fullness of God's redemption in our lives. We're free to take up that cup and we're going to do so here in a moment. Would you stand with me as we